listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by Dougie Center, the National Grief Center for Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Hey all, this is the second in our four-part series of episodes that are more educational. The first was about the realities of Black grief with Daniela McIntosh. This one is all about becoming grief-informed. For it, I got to talk with two of my colleagues at Dougie Center, Dr. Donna Sherman, the Senior Director of Advocacy and Education, and Dr. Monique Mitchell, the Director of Training and Translational Research. From their titles alone, you might guess these two know a lot. And even though I've worked with them for years, I was still a little intimidated to interview them. My fears were quickly allayed, though, as they, similar to Danila, do a great job of talking about more academic material in a way that we can understand and relate to. In this episode, we get into what does it actually mean to be grief-informed, why is that important, and what are the 10 core principles and tenets of grief-informed practice that Donna and Monique outlined in their 2020 paper, Becoming Grief-Informed, A Call to Action. That paper is based on the foundational understanding that grief is natural and normal, and it is interwoven into a socio-cultural context. It also recognizes that grief is not an experience that needs to be fixed, treated, or pathologized, but one that deserves understanding, support, and community. In addition to her role as Senior Director of Advocacy and Education, Donna was the Executive Director of Dougie Center from 1991 to 2015. Dr. Sherman is an internationally recognized authority on grief and bereaved children, teens, and families, and the author of Never the Same, Coming to Terms with the Death of a Parent. Monique Mitchell, in addition to her role as Director of Training and Translational Research, is a nationally recognized authority on children, teens, and families who are grieving in foster care, and the author of The Neglected Transition, Building a Relational Home for Children Entering Foster Care, and Living in an Inspired World, Voices and Visions of Youth in Foster Care. And if this conversation leaves you wanting to learn more, there's an opportunity to participate in our upcoming grief education webinar, where Monique is going to be presenting Becoming Grief Informed, Foundations of Grief Education. It's happening on Thursday, January 18th, 2024, from 10 to 1130 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. And you can sign up at our website, www.dougy.org. Okay. Here's my conversation with Donna and Monique. Oh, and please check out the show notes because that's where you'll find both the Becoming Grief Informed original paper and a shorter two-page version with suggestions for how to become more grief informed in our lives and in the world. Donna, Monique, thank you so much for taking time out of what I know are extremely busy schedules to be part of Grief Out Loud today. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Happy to be here, Jana. Thank you. Thanks, Jana. Can you both briefly introduce yourselves and talk a little bit about like why you're so committed to this work? Uh, Donna, you want to go first on that one? Sure. 
Well, I have been working at Dougie Center for over 30 years. I think it's almost in the in the mid-30s. And for several years before that, I was a volunteer. And I've had the privilege, really, Jana, over those years of listening to children, young adults, teens, parents around the world talk about what it's like to be grieving in the context of where they live and their homes and their family and their community. And there are many, many similarities. There are some differences. But what strikes me even now, all these years later, is how much people talk about the ways in which they don't feel supported and they don't feel, they feel othered uh, in their grief, which makes it even more isolating. So for me, I thought I would work at Dougie Center maybe five, six, seven years, and 30-some years later, I'm still passionate about helping people understand how to better support people who are grieving. Yeah, and that even 30-plus years in, still hearing from people, uh, this this environment, this context doesn't feel supportive. There's still so much more work to be done in that realm. There really is. Whether it's in a school setting, a home setting, a community setting, religious settings, spiritual settings, there's, and I'm not saying there aren't people who are helpful, but certainly the, the stories that I heard 30 years ago, I still hear today, unfortunately. And Monique, how about you? Well, um, I would say I have, of course, have the good pleasure of working with you, Jana, and with Donna at Dougie Center. And I think coming from, I mean, different backgrounds, but I'm just thinking from an educational background of, you know, when I was working at the university and, you know, watching students go through their schooling and really looking for like good textbooks or good educational resources. And what I was reading, I was like, ah, this doesn't really map the lived experience that I know or my students know. Um, and really feeling the need to say like, what exactly, like Donna said, like what is the the reality of people who are grieving and how do we have better materials to support those um, who aren't feeling like they're perspectives or their experiences of grief are actually being reflected in the literature right out there. So that's something I'm really passionate about. A lot of what I do at Dougie Center, as you know, is provide grief education to professionals who are supporting people who are grieving. And even the professionals that Donna and I work with, we do a lot of that training, um, is they're like, we never received grief education. When we received this education, this education, they're not feeling really equipped for it. Um, so that's a bit of the background of um, my work at Dougie Center. And then why am I committed to the work? I would say really because, and I imagine most of your listeners can resonate with this, um, when someone in your life dies or even when you're disconnected from them, it can be extremely painful. It can be disorienting. It's It, it often is confusing and ultimately it can be heartbreaking. And I believe, you know, because we all go through this, it's it's a it's a universal human experience, right? Most of us, if not all of us, will experience loss at some time in our lives. And I think it's really important for us to really consider how do we show up for one another in loving and supportive ways. What I really appreciate about the conversation we're gonna have and what sparked that conversation, which is the the paper that you all wrote, the Becoming Grief Informed, a call to action is that in my time at Dougie Center of 20 something years, there was just doing the work, 
right? Sitting with the kids and the teens and the young adults and just like doing it and hearing from them. And then you all wrote this paper and I was like, oh, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you know, like really articulating something that that has come from the ground up in a sense of coming from the people who are grieving. So I just wanted to acknowledge that both of the experience that you have, both as professionals and as people who are grieving, also play a role uh, in the creation of this framework of becoming grief-informed. And, and Monique, I know we're going to go into detail about, you know, what does it mean to actually be grief-informed? But can you give us just a short overview to give some context? Absolutely. And Jenna, I just want to just go back to something you said. I really do appreciate you mentioning like what the the foundation to this document is because again as i mentioned a lot of the times it can be theory that's out there and it's like but what's that based on and when we developed uh, this paper we really wanted to be intentional about what are the stories we're hearing from our families not just at dougie center but throughout the world right as donna mentioned she's been all over the place um and really from her own experiences regardless of what language someone speaks or what culture they're from, but what are some of those normative, I hate to use the word universal, but kind of the constants that, you know, you hear. And we really wanted to hone in on when people said to, to like in reflection of their experiences, people don't get it when, or I really hate it when people do this. And we were really listening for what is it that people are saying they need and what is that what's not reflected in the literature around what their needs are or where's the conflict or the contention between the two so um <clears throat> going back to your original question about you know what does it mean to be grief informed and we can chat a bit about that during our conversation today but you know in, in more or less it means that you have some understanding about how to support people in ways that are helpful and meaningful to the person who's grieving and to recognize and acknowledge that there is no one size fits all approach to supporting people who are grieving, right? We know that people are unique, our relationships are unique, our contexts are unique, and so our grief is unique too. And there are so many approaches out there. And in my humble opinion, if I can say this, that some of those approaches are more harmful than they are helpful. And so really our call to action is to really center the individual their unique experiences, their context, and their needs, while simultaneously embracing, you know, the humanistic value that every human being is worthy of dignity, of respect, and love. And so how do you encapsulate all of that in a in a in a way so that people can feel received, feel feel felt, right? Feel supported. And also you're not taking this one size fits all approach to understanding their specific grief, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And, and I appreciate you kind of giving that short context of like what it is. And then Adana, that makes me wonder like, why? Like, why is it necessary to be grief informed individually, organizationally, culturally in the family? I think it's necessary for so many reasons. For for the grieving person, it's necessary so that they can understand what I'm going through is normal and natural and and this is what grief is. Because we get a lot of people saying, am I doing it wrong? Did I miss a stage? What if I'm not angry? Do I have to be angry? All these things that we can load on ourselves about how to do it, quote, right. And so just for the individual, then for the larger society, whatever that community may be, how do we help support our children, our teens, our young adults, 
our parents, our adults who are grieving. How do we do that? And our society is filled with misconceptions around grief, like we try to get over it as if it's a, a horrible, bad thing and we need to end it so we can move on with our lives. And it's also important in our collective societies like schools. I just did a training recently in California for a school district with about almost 50 school counselors and school psychologists. And when we asked how many of you have had, for how many of you is this the first training you've had? And these are people with master's degrees, master's degree education. How many of you have had training on grief and loss and how it may impact your students. Two people raised their hands out of 50 that they had had. And and that was like an hour course somewhere. We're not providing the support that our children need that are, and I think a lot of it is because we didn't get that as adults. We didn't get that in our training as well. So it's really critically important. One thing that comes to mind, too, you know, talking about those school psychologists and counselors who are, you know, sitting with students and they've had no training or maybe one one hour training on how to support students who are grieving or kids who are grieving. They're doing that in the context of an organization that doesn't have a lot of understanding of grief. And these are adults who are likely walking through the doors of their uh, places that they work also carrying their own grief, right? Because it's something that ev- eventually <laughs> impacts every single one of us. So when I think about the the ripple effect of becoming grief-informed is that, you know, if this, this one counselor gets a training on becoming grief-informed and then they're more aware for their own grief, for their colleagues' grief, you know, it's just all of how important that is. It is actually one of the things that often happens in the trainings that we do for professionals, whether they're psychiatrists, medical personnel, school personnel, social workers, is reflecting on your own grief and what our individual biases and experiences are that start to shape or color how we respond to other people. You know, Donna, one question that comes up a lot is, you know, what's the difference between being grief-informed and being trauma-informed? Because I feel like in the last five to 10 years, that concept of trauma-informed is is much more uh, on people's radar and grief-informed is kind of like coming in. So what's your sense of that? Well, that is about a two-hour discussion, Jana, but I'm going to try to <laughs> do a real quick bite on it. I would say the field of traumatology has done a better job at educating people about the impact of trauma. And one of the things they do in the field of trauma in, is to ask people, what happened to you? What happened to you? What is your experience? And unfortunately, in the larger field of thanatology, I won't get to, but the study of death, dying, and bereavement, a lot of people are still asking, what's wrong with you? As opposed to what happened to you. And so there's overlap. There are deaths where people experience trauma. There are deaths where people don't experience it as traumatic for them. So there definitely is overlap, but there are differences. And that's why we wanted to make sure when we were writing this paper about how to understand grief and to be grief informed, we wanted to look at and try to pull out some of the pieces that are specific to grief that may or may not be overlaps with trauma. 
you know, sometimes I feel, and this might just be me, but I feel like I understand something better when I have an example of what it is not, you know, yeah. it's like, I can better understand what the color purple is by seeing blue <laughs> for whatever reason. <laughs> so I'm wondering, do you have an, a personal or professional example of a time when you encountered a grief informed response and also a not grief informed response? I can take that one, Donna, if you want, start off. Uh, so, Janet, you know, one of the things that just comes to mind um, in terms of like a grief-informed response, and this might not be something that people are like, oh, really? But often some of the things that come up when we are providing support to parents specifically um, or people who are wanting to support parents say, you know, I don't want to cry in front of my child. I don't want to cry in front of my child. And I remember there was this one mother who was telling me a story about how she kept leaving the room because she didn't want her child to see her crying. And then one day the little girl went up to her mom, like found her in her room. She think she was in her closet crying. She just didn't want her little, it was just a little, little wee one. But, you know, of course, the little girl's sneaking around and finds her mom and she put her arm around her and she said, mom, it's okay to cry. I'm sad too. And that story really touched my heart because, you know, we we're human and we have emotions and while not all emotions will feel good, right? Like sometimes crying can feel good. Sometimes it doesn't feel good. Um, but we do need healthy ways to express them and know it's okay to do so. And I think it's really fascinating, you know, how even our young children can teach us that, uh, you know, they're smart, you know, kids know what time it is. So it's, it was really touching that this young child was able to hold a healing space for her mom to just authentically feel and understanding that her mom was sad. And so one of the things I really like to encourage parents is I, I don't tell them how to parent, that's not my job, but to say that, you know, we're teaching our kids that there's all these different emotions when they are grieving and that it's okay to feel them. And if we hide them, the kid think, sometimes think that it's not okay to feel that too. So I just really loved how the, uh, that was a really grief-informed response. The young girl really basically saying to her mom, it's okay to cry. You know, I understand you're sad. Um, so that's an example of a grief-informed response, I'd say. And then when I think about responses that aren't grief-informed, uh, ones that just immediately come to mind are things like, um, let me see, when someone says, oh, well, you're young, you can have another baby after someone has had a baby die or things like, you didn't like them anyway. So why are you upset about this, right? When someone who's had a person die who maybe they had a conflictual relationship with. And I try not to be judgmental. And I understand that sometimes people ask these questions or say these things because they think they're being helpful, right? Like I'm trying to help find a solution or I'm trying to make you better or bright-sided. And we know with grief-informed work that bright-siding is actually can be dissuading from really holding that space for what the person needs to feel in that moment. Um, and so if anything, when we start to shift away or say things that aren't helpful, they end up being more hurtful. And it can really be painful when we don't hold space for people to be able to experience the grief, you know, clearly, hopefully in a healthy way, um, that's not a harmful way to themselves. But whatever that is, whether, I don't know, whatever that may be for that individual, I think our responsibility from a grief informed perspective is to honor what that is. Again, as long as the person's not harming themselves and hold that space, even if it's uncomfortable for you, right? Even if it's uncomfortable for me, it might be something that doesn't feel, and it might feel awkward. I, I remember back with, with my students, I would say to them, 
if it's feeling comfortable, you're probably doing it wrong. <laughs> it's, it's hard to feel comfortable in that because grief isn't a comfortable experience, right? But we can feel a little bit more confident, right? I might feel more confident about supporting you, but maybe not super comfortable. But I do feel comfortable in knowing that I want to hold the space for you. So like, find this find the area where you feel that confidence. Maybe we're not here to solve things, right? Often I say, not for everybody, Jana, but often it's like when I think about people who are really expressing like, I miss this person, I wish they were here. I'm like, I imagine for those people that I'm supporting in that moment, the the best thing for them would be to be able to have that person back if they're missing them. I can't make that happen, right? That's a, a feeling of, in some ways, despair. That's where my discomfort is. I wish I could do this for you, but it's not humanly possible. So what can I do? And how can I create that space to just hold and listen? Um, and I think that's another really important piece of grief-informed practice is a lot of the times helping professionals feel like they have to do, do, do. And I remember, you know, <laughs> again, students going through their, their graduate studies and being like, but I need to do something. And I'm like, listening is doing <laughs> something. Like, just really <laughs> hold that space. So I would just say those are some examples of, you know, grief-informed responses and then things that are not as helpful um, and when we're trying to support somebody who's grieving. Yeah, thanks, Monique. It makes me think of um, the question that people get asked so often when they might reveal that they've had someone die. And the, one of the first questions, apart from like, what happened, is always, were you close? Right. And I think of that falling pretty firmly in the not particularly grief-informed column, um, only because I, as what you were talking about, like that level of comfort that we might be seeking. So if I'm sitting with someone who's grieving and I might be thinking, oh, I'm trying to do something to make them comfortable. But underneath that, it's usually because I'm trying to make myself more comfortable. And so when I hear that question, were you close? It's like, oh, now I know how much grief support to give you. Right. Because if you tell me you weren't close, oh, phew, I don't have to do so much doing again. But if you tell me you were close and I got to really like engage my grief superhero mindset to like be there for you uh, and how dismissive that can be of the the wide range of reactions that can come regardless of what the relationship was like with the person. And Jana, just to go to a child's perspective of that question, I remember in one of the groups that I was doing years ago, uh, someone asked that to a nine-year-old, were you close to your dad? And the child responded, no, he was hundreds of miles away when he died. So very literal. I just want to add one thing to what Monique had to say. I remember sitting with a father whose daughter had been killed. And he was talking about how everybody was trying to help him and help make him feel better and help him feel better. And he finally said to a good friend, your relentless need to make me feel better is actually hurting me. Let me feel bad. And that ties into our, our job is not to try to bright side things. It's to help people feel understood. Absolutely. I feel like, again, we got another hour long conversation we could have just exactly. about that. Piece. Um, but Donna, you know, I want to go to the paper that you and Monique wrote, Becoming Grief Informed, A Call to Action. And in that you outline my job, the 10 core principles and tenets of grief informed practice, uh, seven of which talk about what grief is and is not. And then the other three kind of outline what grief informed support can look like. Could you walk us through those seven that really talk about grief? Yeah, Jenna, I'll do so in hopefully easy 
to grasp language. But number one, grief is normal. It's natural. It's a, a universal experience, and it's actually a good thing for us, even though it's uncomfortable. So it's not something that we have to try to get rid of. A uh, second one is, and a lot of people have probably heard about complicated grief or complex grief or persistent bereavement-related disorder, all these other terms that we come up with. And we believe that grief is non-pathological. It's not a pathology. It's not a mental disorder. It's not an illness. Grief is complex and complicated because people are complicated. You know, our relationships are complicated. I think grief is inherently complicated and complex. Third, it's not just what happens in someone's mind or in someone's own experience. It's always happens in a context where in some sort of family, whether it's biological or chosen family or a combination of that, we're in a specific community, a country, a region, we have associations with whatever, sports teams, friends, bars, all those contexts weigh in around how we will grieve. And I think that so often people are looking at grief as an individual experience, and it's much broader than that. It's also disruptive, a fourth, a fourth principle that we have. It's disruptive. It challenges us. If my only child dies, am I still a parent? If someone asks me, how many children do you have? And I have three and one died. Do I say I have three or do I say I have two and one died? Am I still a brother if my sibling dies? There's, am I just so many questions? It also is disruptive around our beliefs and assumptions around the world. And it may be our spiritual beliefs or our beliefs about safety. It's very disruptive. I think Monique mentioned this earlier, but it's also person-centered. There's an, there is an individual component to it because we have different personalities. So the intensity, the duration, the experience of grief are different for every individual. And they're also different for every person who dies. So I have experienced the death of my father, my mother, and my brother. And I responded in different ways to each of those deaths because I had different relationships with them. So it's not just I as an individual respond differently. I will also respond uniquely to different people in my life and our lives. So that person-centered is the, the fifth principle. The sixth one is that it's it's grief is dynamic. There's no magical end point. I think when we're going through the the difficult parts of grieving, we can say to ourselves and people often say, when will this be over? You know, I wish I could say, well, five o'clock Friday, <laughs> you know, give some, <laughs> but, but there's no finish line. Uh, I think we can continue to, and hopefully we do continue to miss someone who was important in our lives. It's not like, oh, I don't care that they died anymore. There's always new aspects to it. So it may change in nature or intensity, but that intensity may also come up unexpectedly. So it, grief is dynamic. And then 
tied into it is that it's non-finite. Um, I just go back to dynamic for a second and say, we have a lot of theories around grief and and theories are ways to try to make sense of things, but they aren't the thing itself. So we could say, oh, there's stages, there's phases, there's tasks, and there are all kinds of models out there. But isn't our job as grieving people to fit into some theory? And that's where I think people say, am I doing it right? Or are they taking too long? Or what's the norm that I should be weighing myself against as a grieving person or someone in my life? And it's it's not capturable. There's not a correct or incorrect way to do it. Certainly, there are ways that are harmful to respond. We can do things that are harmful to ourselves or others. So I'm not saying there's you know, right or wrong in that sense, but I'm saying it's it's unique. And then it is non-finite. Grief is ongoing. And I wish people understood that better because if we understood that it's ongoing, oh, I'm going to get, I'll be in a store and I smell a perfume and I, I want to fall to my knees because it reminds me of my person who died. That's normal. That, that could actually be, I think Alan Wolfelt calls a grief embrace as opposed to a negative thing. So those are seven of the, of the principles very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Don. I think that does a wonderful job of outlining it. And, and listeners, I know I'll say this again at the end, but I will link to the paper in the show notes so that you can really delve into uh, the details of that. And Donna, as you were talking, you know, I think about that idea of grief being unique and non-finite and how interwoven those two concepts are in that each time we experience a new death or a new loss, oftentimes we go back and revisit prior losses, prior deaths, and they kind of come up and become part of that. And, you know, rather than each loss having its own storage bin in the closet of our minds, with the <laughs> lid tight, I think of it as like layers of curtains, you know, and each time there's a new loss, it changes the way the light comes through the previous curtain in that way. So I really appreciate how all of these concepts are connected with one another. One thing I want to add to that, Jana, and I I've love that concept. Uh, my mother died in November of 2020, and my brother died six months later. So there were some of those kinds of issues that you mentioned. There's also another phenomenon that I experienced recently, which I think a lot of people can identify with, which is I had a good friend whose parent was dying this month. He was talking about being with his parent as his parent was dying and having that week between knowing that he was toward the end of his life and that he had died. And it hit me in a way that it hadn't since 2020 when my mother died. That, And I knew I didn't have that experience, but to have a really close friend who was describing what it was like being able to be with their parent. So it can be other people's experiences that activate our issues or experiences of people being murdered when you've had someone murdered and you read that in the paper and it just activates all of your own issues. So there are multiple ways that those, and, th and that's part of being human. 
Yeah, because it makes me think, and Monique, I'm coming to next, I swear. But it's <laughs> one more <laughs> thought I had around, you know, you mentioned, Donna, like, grief is not just this individual internal experience that people grieve in a context. And also, people grieve in a community and collectively. You know, you mentioned, like, for me, being part of the queer and trans community, anytime someone who's queer or trans is murdered, that impacts me and all of my friends and chosen family in ways, even if we never met this person, right? But it hits on something that we can really um, be impacted by. Yes. Okay, Monique, over to you. How about the three uh, tenants that are really around grief-informed support for people who are grieving? Well, I would say, you know, there are so many different ways to provide grief support. Again, it depends on the needs of the person. But when we were developing this model, based on, again, the lived experience, I would say of thousands and thousands of people, um, this isn't like a small, I want to be just clear on that. It's not like we spoke to three people and said, oh, let's build this. I mean, this is a lot of folks and many years, over 40 years, I believe, of Dougie Center's um, involvement with folks everywhere. Uh, we we did identify some constants that seem to be true for all people that also, you know, I would say you can see in the literature as well, but I think it really needed to be pronounced because when we think about like, what do I do? What do I do? Right. If we're, if I'm not some of those folks that are like, this thing's just not enough. Right. But like, what are the ways to create that safe container? I think it's really important. And I believe that it's true that all people need to feel connected with and supported by others. And depending on who that is, right? Might That might be, I might feel connected and supported by these people, but not those people. But ultimately, every person, regardless of whether you're grieving or not, right? In order to feel like you have a safe container, you need to feel like there are people in your life that get you and that are going to hold space for you and not judge you and support you and put really your needs first in that regard, right? Like if I'm the person who's grieving, I don't need to always hear about what's going on in your life. Like, please just let me hold the space and hold the space for me um, to just be in my grief, right? So that's one, the opportunity to feel like we have some sense of control and choice about our life and our grief when we're grieving. Like everything has kind of fallen apart. I feel like the world has totally turned itself upside down in like a, a split moment sometimes. And I need to feel like there's gotta be, like I have to have some hope that there's an opportunity to have some control over something. And I have to be able to feel like I have the ability to have choice about something because that without those, we start to fall into helplessness and hopelessness. And those can be very devastating for a lot of things that we don't want to happen in our lives, right? Where we start to fall into depressions or fall into different types of things where we feel like we can't get out of it, right? So we definitely need to feel like there is um, some element of choice and control in our own lives and feeling a sense of safety on all levels. And I just really like to emphasize this because growing up when I was being taught about safety, it's really talked about in terms of like physical safety, like how do we create physical safety? And I think that we've done a much better job um, understanding that safety expands beyond, and physical safety is super important, don't get me wrong, but it has to expand also beyond physical, right? Like, am I feeling emotionally safe? Am I feeling psychologically safe? Am I sp feeling spiritually safe, right? All of those things are important, right? And and just going back, and we we outline this more in the paper, Janet, but like really even thinking about like, are you recognizing the context that I've come from or I'm in, right? If I have a history or the community I'm in, 
has a history of oppression or injustices or discrimination, do you recognize that that's part of my story, right? Are you able to hold space for that in addition to the grief I'm experiencing? Because if you can't, you're not able to provide the actual element of safety that I really need to be helped, right? And I think all of that is so important. And I think a lot of the theories out there miss the context piece, right? And I know we really do a good job, I believe, um, at Dougie Center and our work to really emphasize the importance of context. And I think that this model does, but if we're leaving context out of it, we're missing the ball. You know what I mean? We are missing the ball. And so it's not just the person and how the person responds. It's also the people in the person's life. Do they or do they not have people to go to? And then the society in which that person is, and what are the constraints and the facilitators to help them with their grief, right? So it's such a large context. Again, we can't unpack it in the short time. Um, we do address some of those elements in the paper, but really... It sounds like a lot, but I think when you get, like, if you really take the time, the patience, the compassion, and the heart, it's easy to provide to someone. Like, when we train facilitators, you know this, Jana, when we train facilitators on our model, they're like, wow, I was expecting it to be so comp complicated, right? But it's actually such an easy thing to hold space if you do these things, right? And so um, I definitely think it's it's a possibility. It's just a matter of suspending, you know, we have to suspend judgment and we have to really be open to how do I be, how do I put what maybe all the things I've been taught and learned a little bit aside to really know how do I show up for someone in the way they need me to show up for them. Thanks, Monique, for get, for saying that about the idea that it's, it's, it's simple and then it's also sometimes not easy. And I'm really sitting with this idea of when we're with somebody who's grieving, a child, a teen, a young adult, parent, you know, whoever we're sitting with, there's the zooming into their unique experience and hearing that story, and then also needing to zoom out to the bigger context that might be playing a role in that individual unique experience. So that's what I love, again, about this paper that the two of you wrote, is it helps me even as a professional to like, zoom in to the uniqueness and then zoom out to the context and carry both of those things into every interaction that I'm having with someone who's grieving. So I just wanted to offer a word of appreciation of, of giving that a little bit of a framework uh, for me personally and working with people. I would say also that it sounds simple to not judge people and really listen and really open the conversation or you're listening to whatever people need. But I think our society sort of pressures us to give answers, to be experts who help people feel better as quickly as possible so they can get back to work and not be crying in their bedroom. And there are these aspects of grieving where you have insight into what really matters, which is relationships, which is people. It's not stuff. It's not things we accumulate. I don't think anybody's on their deathbed saying, I wish I'd gotten one more set of golf clubs. You know, they're, they're saying, I wish I had told the people that I loved that I loved them. I wish I had spent more time with them. Or hopefully they're saying, I'm so grateful for the love I gave and the love I received. And so 
the idea that it's not our job to tell people what to do or make them feel better runs contrary to a lot of our mainstream society. Yeah, the the pressure to be productive, even if you're in second grade, there's spelling to be done. (laughs) And that a lot of our our work to support kids or teens or young adults or adults can be like, how do I prop them up as quick as possible so they can get back to the business of doing the stuff that they're supposed to do? Yes. You know, Monique, the next step from outlining grief-informed practice was to create Dougie Center's uh, hashtag understand grief campaign, which is really about moving from like understanding it and having that framework to like putting it into action. Do you have a few suggestions for listeners who might be, you know, maybe they're tuning in to get support in their own experience of grief, or they're learning how to better support friends or family members or colleagues uh, on how they can act? Yeah, just a few that come to mind. We do outline a number of those in the in the um, paper. The I believe you'll put the two pager, right, Jenna, online as well. Okay, um, but some that just come to my mind in terms of this conversation is you know being compassionate with yourself and with others. And I think you know we know that grief can be completely overwhelming, and sometimes people are going to make mistakes. Sometimes we're going to make mistakes, and that's okay. You know, it's just really having that compassion and. Um, willingness to learn and be supportive and really taking the time for yourself, for others. And again, coming back to being gentle in the process. I think that there's just, we have so much to learn, you know, even, even the three of us on this call, right? We're always learning in our, in our world. We're always learning in our personal lives or professional lives. And I think the more we can be kind with one another, I know that sounds cliche, but I, I'm, I genuinely feel that like kindness can go a long way in terms of supporting other people and really holding space. Try not to buy into the hype of labeling yourself or others. There's a lot of pressure out there to like, let's label this or let's label that or you're this. And, and I think that that can be really harmful and hurtful. Um, I mean, grief is hard enough as it is. Like, let's just try our best not to like start to go stereotyping other people around, well, you're this and, or you're representing this. And as Donna and I have talked about, and it's in our paper, we're we're very against um, labeling people with mental disorders as a result of their grief. Grief is normal and natural. Um, And so, you know, this, what's happening to me isn't happening in my head. This is happening in my world, in my life, in my, you know, my one-on-one relationships, my relationships, whether it's with my partner or with my children, if I have those, or my colleague, whatever it is, my society. So to say that this is happening in my head is actually quite offensive. So I encourage people to avoid labels if and when possible. Um, And then just, again, just reiterating that there are so many different ways to grieve and there is no right or wrong way to feel. Right. So we tend to say, well, I should be feeling this, or I feel guilty about feeling guilty. And it's like, it's just this overending, like, oh my gosh, like <laughs> my head's going to spin so large. So just being open to how you grieve. I, uh, I've learned over the years, both professionally and personally, like sit with your emotion, right? Maybe I'm feeling anxious in the moment. Like, just what does anxious feel like? Like, how do you hold that space for a bit? Don't judge it, right? And just honor it and just let it, you know, be aware of it. Because if we can hold space for all of that, then I think we can learn again, how to be kinder to ourselves and to others, um, and that people do grieve differently. So it's okay to be different. You know, a lot of times people say, wow, uh, I hear this, like, I would never do that, or I can't believe you do this, or you did, you know, when someone's talking about comparing, and it's like comparing grief. And it's like, that's not helpful. (laughs) I don't think it's helpful. Like, 
it's okay to be different. Wow. When your mom died, you know, you decided you wanted to respond in this way. And when my mom died, you know, whatever that may be, it's more of just learning and just be like, wow, that's really different. And that's okay. Difference can be okay. I think that sometimes people feel like we have to all be doing everything the same for it to be right. And the right thing can be doing what you need to do for yourself in a healthy way and it'd be different, right? Because we're all on our own unique journeys. I firmly believe that. And so supporting each other on that, not having an expectation we should all be doing it the same, but we should all be doing it lovingly. I really do think that loving one, one ourselves and one another. I was laughing a little on the inside, Monique, when you talked about the feeling guilty about feeling guilty <laughs> in that I, I mean, all the time people will come into a group and say, you know, early on in their grief, like, this is the worst feeling ever. When am I going to stop feeling this way? This is not sustainable. This is not manageable. And then maybe like three, four, six months later, they'll come into group and say, oh my gosh, I went a day without it feeling totally overwhelming. I can't believe that. What's wrong with me? I feel so bad for not feeling as bad as I did at the beginning. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'm always like, y'all, this is a really bad setup for <laughs> what you got yourselves into there. But it's and then the whole group just nods and be like, yep, we totally get it. We can relate. There's the guilt about not feeling terrible, even though at the beginning, all you wanted was to not feel terrible. Can I just add, Jana, that I think one of the things that's really important, like a, a personal call to action for people who are grieving, is to be kind to oneself and to be curious. Monique alluded to it really in saying the aspect of uh, allow yourself to feel what you feel. And what you feel is okay. There, there, there aren't feelings that are right or wrong feelings. There may be uncomfortable, they may be unpleasant, but if we could show the compassion to ourselves that we hope to show to the people that we love, I think it would, it would help personal grieving in terms of, hmm, I'm noticing that I'm feeling this. What, what's going on here? Instead of, I shouldn't feel that, and then trying to distract ourselves so that we don't feel whatever that is. Easier said than done, but I, I do think everything starts with the individual as we're able to be compassionate toward ourselves as we grieve. I think it helps us be more compassionate to other people. Well, Donna, Monique, I just really appreciate your time today. So appreciative of the paper that you created, Becoming Grief Informed, a call to action for helping kind of put that out into uh, the listenership space today to give people just like a little brief window into it. So again, listeners, links will be in the show notes. Um, you can always reach out and connect with Donna and Monique through Dougie Center work. But Donna, Monique, thank you for your time today and for this really important work that you're doing. Thank you, Jana. Thanks, Jana. And listeners out there, I say this each and every single time, but thank you for tuning in, for making the show mean what it does. I love hearing from you. If you want to email me, you can reach out directly at griefoutloud at dougie.org. That's D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G, which is our main website where you'll find the paper, Becoming Grief Informed, A Call to Action, as well as all of our free downloadable resources like activity sheets, tip sheets, and each and every episode of Grief Out Loud. And if this conversation leaves you wanting to learn more, there's an opportunity to participate in our upcoming grief education webinar. 
where Monique is going to be presenting Becoming Grief-Informed, Foundations of Grief Education. It's happening on Thursday, January 18th, 2024, from 10 to 11.30 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. And you can sign up at our website, www.dougy.org. Excited as always to share that our podcast is sponsored in part by the Chester Stefan Endowment Fund. Thanks again for listening. Hope you'll join us again next time.